Welcome to another insightful episode of the Roots to Food podcast, where we explore the amazing growth of the fields of agriculture, entrepreneurship, and sustainable practices. I'm your host, Ovidiu Bujoran, Technical Director for Partnerships and Investments with AV Ventures, the impact investing arm of ACDI Voca. ACDI Voca is a 60-year-old nonprofit US-based organization and the global leader in market systems development. In today's episode, we embark on a journey through the vast landscapes of the African continent, exploring the dynamic realm of agri-tech ventures and their transformative impact on communities. Our focus extends beyond borders as we discuss the potential and challenges of scaling up ventures, not only across Africa, but also reaching far beyond its borders. Join us as we engage with experts and pioneers who are at the forefront of revolutionizing agriculture through technology. From precision farming and data-driven approaches to sustainable practices that ensure food security, we uncover the stories of those who are driving change and contributing to the growth of agri-tech on a global scale. We have with us Mary Shelman, who is the founder of the Shelman Group, and also the former director of agribusiness program of the Harvard Business School. Also joining is Claire Hassoun, the founder and CEO of Upload, and she currently lives and works in Maputo, Mozambique. Last and certainly not the least, we have with us Abubakar Haidarus, is the founder and CEO of SolarGen Technologies. As a disclaimer, SolarGen is one of the portfolio companies of the Inc. Fund of AV Ventures in Kenya. So we have been working closely for the past few years in helping the growth of SolarGen in Kenya in particular. We'll also have with us uh, in a separate interview, Ayo Arikawe. He is the co-founder and CTO of Thrive Africa Limited from Nigeria. Its company has points of presence across a number of African countries. Welcome everyone again. Let me start with, with Mary. You are an expert in global agribusiness trends. Can you please highlight for us two or three key trends in the industry that you see are shaping the future of agriculture and ag tech? And how do you think these trends might impact the strategies of companies and governments uh, worldwide? Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you are. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here, and I'm excited to participate in this important conversation. It's, you know, I've been involved, expert is a, is a grand term, right? But I've been following the agribusiness industry basically all my life. It's My dad was a farm equipment dealer. I grew up with him, and he had farms. This was in Kentucky, but it wasn't until that I ended up at Harvard Embassy Harvard Business School to do an MBA that I really got engaged in the sector and thinking about this as kind of a, how strategically important it is. I love all the aspects to it. But basically, there, there's four trends that I talk about, and I've been talking about these trends now for the last, you know, probably 10, 12, 15 years, which is the important thing about trends, right? They hang around. The first is that consumers are much more engaged and empowered today than they have historically been when they think about the food that they consume and buy. And this doesn't matter if you're a, you know, in a very uh, developed market and have, you know, multitudes of choices or in, I think, uh, maybe even more important to consumers, shoppers in 
you know, very constrained markets to where the decisions that they're making about food products impact their, you know, the lives of their family and their family budgets every day. So, you know, that's one that goes through. Second piece that's super exciting, and I think we'll talk a lot about today, is the impact of transformational technologies that are being developed and applied at every stage of the agricultural value chain from farm and even pre-farm gate all the way across to to the end consumer in terms of maybe how they shop, you know, how they get information. The, the third trend has to do with sustainability and how a recognition now that sustainability, as we very broadly define it, is actually a, a fundamental for the industry that it, you know, that's from an environmental standpoint, from a social standpoint, from an economic standpoint, that the industry is, um, you know, the food industry is is core to environmental sustainability globally, but also in terms of providing jobs, a source of livelihood, certainly nutrition. You know, it impacts everybody in every place on the earth. We have to recognize that today. And but the, you know, it's complicated, right? Because there's so many different dimensions of sustainability that we can approach, and it's a bit of a moving target. How we how we think about that, and then the fourth the fourth trend I talk about is actually a consequence of the other three, which is increased investor interest over the last you know probably you know ten twelve years. It used to be that you know investing in the food system and agriculture was a province you know governments and big lending organizations because there wasn't really a sense that you can make a lot of money here, but for a financial investor and today it's. You know, we've seen this this history now of a growing level of interest, excitement, urgency about whether they're wealthy individuals, you know, like you know, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Jeff Bezos, some sovereign wealth funds, you know, I think about Tomasic and, and Singapore and many others that care about, you know, food security, but also economic returns. And then just, you know, all sorts of funds that are available today, you know, whether they're climate funds, impact funds, just regular, you know, venture funds. And and this brings a couple of things, you know, one, it's exciting because it allows the these perspective of these, particularly the venture investors, brings a different time horizon that they see. So they see a sense of urgency and they also see the importance of a different scale and scope of change. The idea that, you know, an industry, the food system needs to transform as opposed to just be on a path of continuous improvement. Thank you so much for providing a very good foundation for our conversation. Let me move now to Kenya, to Abubakar Aydarus. Kenya has been a pioneer in adopting renewable energy solutions. As the founder and CEO of Sologen Technologies, can you please share with us the inspiration behind founding the company and the role you envision, envision it playing to the advancement of solar energy solutions, particularly in the Kenyan context. Welcome, Abu Bakar. Uh, thank you, Ovidio. And uh, good, I think good evening. <laughs> it's evening on my end. It's about, I, I think, 7.21. So good evening and good morning to those who are joining from the U.S. My journey started when I was uh, still in college in uh, my fourth year. I got introduced to different sources of energy and uh, solar was one of them. Coming from the northern part of Kenya, which is not connected actually to the grid and most part of it is in darkness, but has an abundance of sun, sunshine, probably about 12 hours in a day. 
Then uh, what was an eye-opening for me was uh, how could it be in darkness when the uh, opportunities were transforming that into an uh, energy that can uh, help develop uh, the area. So then the idea of Sologen was born and uh, I spoke to one of my professors who was able to help me and guide me uh, through. So that, that is how basically it was born out of coming in, into contact with information that I felt was uh, the right information to solve a problem that I personally lived with because doing homework was very difficult because, uh, I mean, if you don't have, you're connected to the grid, the only thing you can use is kerosene. And, and at that time, I think even the solar lamps, the small ones were not available in our area. And our concentration mainly started with looking at boreholes as a starting point, because access to water is not only limited, but also unsustainable in this part of the world, because most of the boreholes that have been done either by the government or done by the international development organizations are powered by diesel uh, generators. And more often than not, then you will find them uh, uh, broken down most of the time, and especially the most critical time, because the northern part, especially because of my experience, is pastoral communities. I think that years, climate change, and for other parts of the world, may still be new, but the last 30 years, it has been building up in these communities. Thank you so much for, uh, for an inspiring story, Abu Bakr moving from renewable energy cold chain solutions and mini grids to to Claire, to transportation and logistics in uh, in mozambique you have deep background in transport engineering and also a lot of experience in west africa and the middle east i want to ask you claire what motivated the transition your transition into the tech entrepreneurship space with upload the online marketplace what what was was the journey and what unique features does Upload employ to create seamless connection between logistics companies and clients? Welcome, Claire. Thank you so much. First and foremost, also, uh, it's a pleasure really to be speaking tonight, tonight here in Maputo, and to be engaging uh, with Abu Bakar and Mary in the South of Vegas. Thank you very much for having me. I would start to say that probably like uh, similarly to Abu Bakar, my journey is very linked to the startup journey, right? It's kind of so intertwined. Sometimes I don't know <laughs> which story am I telling. Is it my own story or the startup story? But basically, I'm an engineer by training. Indeed, I've been working on infrastructure projects on railway uh, roads in West Africa, Central Africa, and the Middle East. And then because of the impact that I that these projects had in the economies that I was working in. I decided to do a master's in public administration at Kennedy School. And the goal was really to work in that space, right? Still in infrastructure, more maybe on the public-private dialogue for these infrastructures. But that was really the goal. Then after graduation, I wanted to work for international institutions. And um, an MIT offered me to do some research in Mozambique. It was the rising star of Africa at that time, had discovered big gas reserves. But his opinion was that it was actually the real potential of Mozambique was to be a connecting point for the whole Southern African region. So I arrived here it was seven years ago and I never left <laughs> because I really bumped into this enormous problem of lack of connection between supply and demand. So basically, when you need to ship soy from one city to another, you either rely on agents or, should I say, a chain of agents that compound 
you know, costs without adding any value. And so it really inflates the cost enormously. While it's extremely risky because you never know who you're shipping with. Maybe in the form of transporters, maybe you don't know. And so you end up praying that this cargo arrives safely, but you have no clue. Then otherwise you have very expensive transportation companies that indeed are accessible in terms of visibility, but impossible for you to make it a sense of uh, the product that you're selling, especially if you're in agriculture where margins are very, very small, right? And so, and you add to that the, 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 the conditions of the road infrastructure. And so the solution that I could see back then when I was doing this research was the government plan to build a $90 billion infrastructure network when the budget of the country was $2 billion. So I thought, you know, this, maybe this is the end of my public career. <laughs> and I thought, okay, no one's thinking of this solution for this problem. I have to do that. So long story short, I became an entrepreneur by accident because I saw such a big problem that no, was, no one was solving the way I thought should be the solution. And how I started to think of upload and it took me some, some time before I actually launched it uh, three years ago. And so we are, what upload does basically is to allow, we connect shippers and carriers, right? So when you need to ship, instead now of relying on people and phone calls, you can put a request on upload in a couple of minutes and then transporters who are vetted in by us. And that is very important when developing countries like Mozambique. They can check the request, place an offer if they're interested with price, truck, and availability. And then you connect and then you can monitor the shipment through the app as well until safe delivery and reward the good transporters with good rating, while we also rate the transporters with our own uh, objective and system. So this is really about real-time uh, information sharing, right? You really mm -hmm. need to have access to the supply and the demand in real time. But you also need to have a trusted network of suppliers when it comes to your service and to know, you know, to, to trust the client also to, who you're shipping for. I can speak hours about upload, so I'm going to stop here for now. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Claire. And I really appreciate it. And I think it connects really nicely to the second question that I would like to ask Mary. It's more of a systemic view as we look in, in both the countries and the regions where you operate on the systemic perspective, both from the design, when you, when you look at the interventions and what are some of the key actors, but also the connective tissues and the connections that can be made. Like, for example, Claire, she built an entire platform that's scalable, that provides that connectivity between the different ecosystem players and also provides a framework of trust, which I really think is critical to allow people to and businesses to confidently use these platforms. If you would like to share a few of your perspectives, Mary, on, on the systemic approach. I think this, this entrepreneur is actually a very good one, you know, looking, one, the importance of ecosystems, right? It's that these are, you know, what happens in terms of, of market development. It just can't happen in isolation. And it's this... Uh, it's everything around it that has to work, right? You know, farmers can produce better crops, but if they can't get them to market because there's there's no truck or they've held hostage by it or if they have no, you know, water from the borehole because there's no electricity, you know, then then it's it doesn't help to have farmers have better outcomes because they can't 
actually be better off from that. And I think it's, you know, finding these pain points and the ability now with technology and these more distributed solutions to come in and be able to to apply those and then to, you know, to to get to that next step. So both of you, you know, just absolutely fascinating businesses around it. But it's, you know, it's the ecosystem composed of a lot of things. You have the technology itself. You have the financing needs around it. You know, Abu Bakr, you know, mentioned that it's, you know, it's, you know, things that that need to to go along to support it. It's the trust and the network. It's also the training part of it, the actual ability to use and then getting out and getting it adopted. So I think those are you know, have been, you know, very well identified here. I think the, you know, we think about, you know, bringing new technologies into market. It's, you know, you can describe them as either being, you know, they could be pills or they could be vitamins, right? You know, vitamins make you feel better, but it's really hard to to quantify, you know, and then really value that piece of it. That's a longer term investment. Pill fixes a problem that you're having right now. So it's maybe an easier sell and we can think about that later on. I think, you know, the the challenge for all of these pieces is that, you know, is that scalability piece and these solutions that kind of are come bubbling up from the bottom, you know, how do you actually get the breakthrough, right? How do you make it something that becomes a transformational platform? Claire, when you were talking, I was thinking, of course, about Uber in the U.S., you know, that we can kind of service our, our transport needs and to do that piece versus something that's a coordinated solution that comes kind of top down, right? You know, why is it so challenging for a government to look out and say, well, wait a minute, instead of doing X, why don't we just all focus on doing Y, right, and bring it in? And you think about, I think, the conversations that happen around, you know, is it, are we fighting? Are we thinking about solutions that grow the pie for everybody? Or do we end up thinking about, you know, kind of, well, now how are we going to split up the pie? And that that gets us all bogged down first, you know, or solutions that span different areas of control. So from a government standpoint, it's like what well, the environmental minister may say this, but the ag minister say that, and the finance minister who has to pay for it all is like, well, now, wait a minute, you know, I'd rather have these other interests here that I need to satisfy. You know, for me, it's, uh, Claire, I'm, I'm an engineer by training like you, and it's like, here's a straight line, right? Here's here's the answer. Why can't we do this? And I think that entrepreneur's journey, you know, kind of navigating and pulling these pieces in and showing it can be done. And then kind of that next question becomes, you know, how do you make it scalable? What additional partners do you have to bring in that can be helpful? Are those partners, are they you know, government partners that can add some level of certification? That could be a problem, too much bureaucracy. Or are they more, you know, kind of corporate partners that say, hey, wait a minute, this is solving a big problem for me that I would have had to solve myself and therefore that this helps me unlock. Thank you, Mary. I want to go back to, to Claire as well, because yeah. there, there are a lot of connecting tissues yeah. be- between the points you shared to ask a little bit some of our reflections to what you shared, but also to share with us some of the challenges that and solutions that she she faced and she built in, in actually developing the, the logistics and supply chain sector uh, in, in Mozambique and for the region as well, and how her platform, your platform player, provides that, that type of connectivity and collaboration and networking opportunities for the different market players in the market. Of course. Thank you. With regards to maybe a couple of points about that, regards to exactly networking effect, because this is really what this is about, right? Uber, like upload, what we want is 
the more users use upload, the, the better the service will be. Just because then you have, you know, all these trucks running around and, you know, they can service better. They can serve better, sorry, these shippers who are in that, in that area at that very moment. Because what this is really about, upload is about <clears throat> optimization of assets. So when you have a lot of trucks running empty, like in any place, in any place in the world, I was recently in Sweden and they were developing an exact uh, same equivalent of upload. So they, this is really a developed a country problem as well as a Mozambican problem, I may say, because these trucks do not connect to the demand in real time. While I, so, they, therefore, they usually charge almost twice the price on the way in because they never know whether they will come back full or empty from the destination. While there is actually cargo out there, maybe not to fill in completely a truck, but at least to fill it partially and then uh, pay back for your, your fuel costs at least. So. The more users come in, the better is the service. And of course, the better we can, you know, uh, explore new um, new statements. And this was my, my second point. We, you, indeed, we really need to think of, we just connect. Transportation just connects. And Apple connects, of course. But we connect the upstream production or even before, like a Bubakar, we connect the, the equipment that will serve the upstream production. And then we connect the production to the markets to be sold or to the transformation area and then to the consumption area. So you need transport all along to make this work. So there is no way around thinking of this uh, in a systemic way. But it's also a problem in itself because can't imagine how many people are asking us, okay, do you know this buyer for that crop or this seller for that commodity? Because once you have that network of shippers, you want to build on that because you know that they are trustworthy agents. And I think, I don't know how, Rebecca, if you can relate to that, but to us, sometimes it's a matter of focusing <laughs> because we have a big enough problem to solve. But, and then you really see, you know, I wish there were more entrepreneurs in that field who could see that in, with our eyes so that they could jump in and say, okay, I'm tackling that one. What are you tackling here? So that the whole value chain and the whole system is, is addressed properly in terms of challenges very briefly you know there are there, there are numerous fortunately the, the the solutions are even more numerous but still we need to <laughs> we need to address them with patience because things do not happen overnight also i understand that abu bakari have been operating solar chain for quite some time now and this is really a patient game when it comes to entrepreneurship in in, in our markets but the, one of the big challenges that I would say is the, the adoption. And we, Mary also was touching uh, on that. So now we, with Upload, we are moving to more rural areas, rural areas to really finally address the lower end uh, users that we always wanted to serve. And that we know it will be an issue adoption. But so you really need to hang around <laughs> long enough so that adoption happens. This is really, I think, you know, the difference maybe between also developed market and, 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 and markets, at least on the continent here for some, is that, you know, it will happen eventually. You just need to plant the seeds so that the uh, adoption happens. And of course, your job is also to come halfway, right? You need to make the app evolve so that uh, the, the, the user understands better. So for instance, now we're developing a simplified request module for aggregators or commercial farms in more remote areas. So instead of five screens, for instance, place your request, which is still quick, 
but might be challenging for for them. It would be just one screen and that one screen and that's it. Depending on what, what they what they're asking for, because this is just dedicated to agriculture. So we need to meet halfway. It's really about the product meets the demand, but we need to make that effort. And as Mary was saying, that's why this is why it needs to be transformative. It cannot be just progressive evolution. So um, I don't usually use disruption because I don't think you can really shock the ecosystem that much. But the meeting halfway with the transformation process, that I, I do believe this in. This is the way to go. Yes, thank you so much. And actually, our motto for this podcast is leapfrog your future. I think we're, as we were discussing earlier, it's good to transform and leapfrog, see what sort of opportunities you see in the market and also share what type of other opportunities that may not be your specific areas of focus, but that other entrepreneurs could, could work on it. Let me move to, to Abu Bakr and talk a little bit more about your experience on the connectivity between the financing and access to financing for you as a venture, for the different stages of growth for your venture, and also the types of availability of knowledge on the scaling of the venture itself. What type of capacity building or what type of resources you as an entrepreneur leverage in terms of like CEO mentoring or other types of capabilities that actually have been very helpful for you. Uh, thank you, Ovidiu. Probably I'll just give a word of encouragement to all the entrepreneurs, and especially when you're doing your startups. I, I remember starting with the financing and writing a concept note while I still at the early stages, still in campus. I wrote a note, took a lot of my time until my classmates were wondering, are you going past the units if you continue this way <laughs> and writing my business plan and concept. And uh, I submitted a concept to uh, one of the uh, big African funds, actually multi-agents, multi-country, and uh, one of the biggest. I was confident that I'll get the startup capital that I needed. <laughs> but then uh, after waiting for a couple of uh, weeks, and uh, fingers crossed, then I got uh, I regret email and I was really uh, heartbroken. The good side is, and many years down the line, the same organization actually called me to advise them on how to structure a deal that they had fragile economies like Somalia, which we also had some experience with. So basically the thing is just be patient, but just to start with, when you're a startup, there are a couple of things that and they work for you and work against you. So you really, really need to look closer home. For example, the la the first capital that I got, I got from my sister and a, a family friend. Okay. And they gave me the first amount, which helped me build my website and uh, actually buy and, uh, and do the website, do a couple of marketing materials and, 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 and open even a small shop in the Garissa where I come from in the northern part of the country, which I had to close because then uh, now it reached a point where I had concentrated on college. But the point is, at any one point, there is some money that you have to raise and you have to know where it is easier to raise from. And mm -hmm. especially earlier part of validation, you need people who can really help you. And so that could be family, friends, and uh, it could be government grants. It could be NGO, you know, this and uh, accelerator programs, get yourself into those programs. And they have very little amount, but very helpful. It will help you to validate what you want to do. 
And then as you grow the company, then there are other funds that may be available to you, like impact investors. And then here you really have to and be very clear in your how um, you're socially conscious, how your solution is providing catering to areas that they're interested in. And then and they definitely once now you have gained some traction and you have shown some profitability, then debt investors also get interested. I mean, get equity investors in Africa at early stages is possible, but not the easiest. So what is available most of the time is debt investment, but you have to get to that point. And so to get to that point, what do you need to do? You really have to have a solid business plan that articulates very well what value you are proposing and articulates very well your revenue model, articulates very well your growth strategy. And uh, so that is very important. Then the other thing that you can do, attend networking events, conferences, workshops, because there you build network with like-minded people as well as people who are looking in com companies and startups to invest in. So that helps you to build a lot of network. Then the other thing is you work on your pitch deck all the time because you're always getting feedback. Every time you do a pitch, something somebody points out something, take it positively, go back, relook at it and refine it and continue to refine it. So and so th those are some of the advices I can give you. But I, I think of it very important is and maybe 10 years, 15 years, that was not available. For me, And uh, I, I had very little experience. I worked with Equity Bank and uh, before, when I finished my high school and before I went to college. So two years, I took two years and then worked in the bank. So that gave me an opportunity to, again, real exposure to real world. And, you know, I find that entrepreneur opening an account and they don't even have the initial deposit to put in the account. But then two years down the line or one year down the line, you can see the same entrepreneur having, you know, a million or two million cash shillings is about 20,000. And that guy could not get $5 to put in that account. So it's a lot of patience. It's a lot of pain. But then and get mentors, get into programs. And so at a later stage, what I, have, I did on my end is I found Harvard had owner an OPM, owner manager program. So I applied and the guys told me, okay, they looked at the profile and everything and they were, they were impressed and they said, okay, we can't accept you for this. So they had key executive program. So they invited me for that. I did that. That was very transformative for me. And uh, the likes of, I think, Professor Linda Abelgate sitting in her class and listening to her, that was really amazing for me. And it gave me tools and uh, that I needed. And, and I think the program was more entrepreneurial and in terms of the modules. And then at the later stage, I also applied for Stanford. Stanford has a seed, uh, STP, uh, Stanford uh, Seed Transformation Program, I think, which is very, very good. I think it's a one-year program. It also gives you a lot of exposure. It gives you, uh, after graduating from that, they give you business coaches. They give you consultants free. They give you even graduate uh, students who come over and, and uh, to look at the, some issues that you want worked on. So the most important thing is you can raise the financing, but you have to get a number of things right, especially taken to entrepreneurs in the soul. I think we are very bad in telling our stories. We are very bad in packaging things. And, and I always say that because we have never failed in the due diligence, but most of the time we don't even get it to the due diligence because and somebody may look at material and say, well, maybe these guys have not presented themselves very well. So I, I think it is very important that you expose yourself into side programs 
and uh, make sure that you you know you do your structure very well especially the financials very essential because that is where getting your advisory board and, and things like that and you can get there are a lot of programs now out there thank you so much abubakar the next one is for mary and it's related to that is like how can entrepreneurs identify and articulate their venture's unique value proposition to create a very compelling story that resonates with the investors and also positions them very effectively to to attract investors. You want to say something, Abubakar? Yes, yes. I, I forgot uh, one bit to add. Of course, on my, my personal journey in terms of the financial space was very interesting because being a, a Muslim, and, uh, there's some sort of funding that we can access and some that we cannot access. So one or some of the challenges were, and when we come to a township, and then uh, it is interest-based, it was always a difficult moment for us, but we never gave up. We have been able to convince in a couple of funds, and I think an Inc. fund was the most, I think, innovative of them. So we made the pitch to them that an Islamic financing is you know, doable, it can be done, and we are serving a community and a section of the population that is absolutely excluded from the financial system simply because of how they want to approach financials and how largely, by and large, the financial system is designed. So okay. they're already marginalized and they cannot access the funds that are available. So we were able to structure Islamic financing with Inc. Fund, every ventures fund that is focused on investing in Northern Kenya. And through that, we have been able to provide financing for solutions, communities that and were excluded Thank you so much for, for adding that. I think it's it's really important to make the connectivity between having access to capital and being able to, to serve communities that otherwise would not have access to finance. Mary, if you could share in one, two minutes a little bit about the unique value proposition of, for the entrepreneurs and their storytelling, maybe a little bit as the history evolves from the early stages to as you scale up a venture, because probably the and probably surely the story changes and you have a lot of things that you can show, not just a picture of the future that you, you see. After listening to Abu Bakari and Claire, I just, again, I just have the, the greatest admiration for the entrepreneur, right? And for the founder, because, you know, Claire, you talked about you're doing all these things and yet there's all these opportunities that are around it that people start coming to you with and you need to do this and you could do that. And there's all these things and this issue of focus. And, you know, the story in Kenya is one about, yeah, so we're out there building this business and doing great things and figuring out how to get farmers to adopt. But yet I have to deal with these investors. I have to find the next round of funding. I have to, you know, it's a different story at different stages. And, you know, how you choose to spend your time is... You know, the imp most important decision that you make, right? Because, and there's this huge tension. I think it, it's actually been highlighted in the world today as we see this really kind of shift in the venture community. It's like, well, wait a minute. It's one thing to fund opportunities, but actually things need to be, make money as well. And so you can get so caught up in, you know, making the pitches, going to the networking events, you know, participating in another accelerator or, you know, another pitch competition. Then you get away from the discipline of actually building something that could be profitable and scalable and attract, you know, viable over the long terms. Thank you so much, Mary. I think it's very helpful to adapt 
obviously your pitch and your story to the different stage of development of your own venture, as well as line up the sources of funding for every specific stage. Let, let me go next to, uh, to Abu Bakar. Um, moving forward, looking ahead, given your extensive skill set, what, what insights do you believe are crucial for the growth and development of the solar energy industry in, in Kenya and Africa overall? Thank you, Abadue. I think uh, renewable energy holds the greatest opportunity for Africa, for Kenya and to large extent for Africa. There is no country in Africa that does not receive, does receive less than eight hours of sunshine a day. Most of them actually receive on average 12 hours. So that basically means, and solar being very uh, modular and in, in terms of design, and it can be placed anywhere and everywhere. It can provide any amount of energy. So that basically means there's no reason why a home in Africa should not have power. There's no reason why a community should not have power. And, but what are crucial for that to happen is financing. Without financing, there's no way solar will and, and provide the full potential that it has for Africa. And in terms of whether it is energy for productive use, that is for farming, powering, and other small industries, definitely that help with an value addition, which is not happening a lot in Africa simply because of lack of energy. So if you look at it, all the economic and opportunities that Africa has is not being exploited because of energy. Yet the sun shines in everywhere. So financing is very important, is very crucial. Uh, government regulations and policies that attract investment and encourage customers is very important. Africa has not benefited from that, frankly. And if you look at what has happened in Europe and North America, really that has opened and that is the reason why and, and in those countries despite not having the same level of resources as africa and they have been able to and uh, do bigger scales and uh, produce more from renewable energy than africa and, 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 and so financing is very important regulation is very important and skill development is very important and, and that also brings me to the point that it also provides not only an unlocking economic and opportunities for the productive side, but also for employment, because it is one of the industries uh, that has the greatest opportunity for employment. And uh, having worked in this space for about now going to the second decade, and uh, I have seen people who have not even finished primary school being able uh, to gain skills and, and today I can tell you some of the people I trained in, in, in work in countries like Somalia and somebody who doesn't have a primary certificate earning 2000 USD per month, that is a great achievement and is only possible, I think, in renewable energy. So there's a lot that and, 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 and renewable energy can really unlock. In terms of Solagen, and uh, I believe now we are at a point where we have been able to contribute a lot in terms of skill development. We have contributed even to policy and uh, regulations and by governments by just providing our feedback and sitting in those discussions. And we are at the point where now we believe that and uh, our business model has been validated. For the last 10 years, we have been profitable and, and uh, I'm happy to say that. And now we want to scale to East African communities. It's about eight countries. And in the next five years, we want to be in all the eight countries. Thank you so much, Abu Bakar. Let me ask the last question, Claire. Looking ahead towards the future of transportation and logistics in Africa, 
what's your vision for the future of Upload and how do you see your platform evolving to, to meet the changing needs and dynamics of, of the logistics and transportation industry? Yeah, exactly. I, thank you for that question. I really wanted to go there, actually, because I really wanted to focus on sustainability that both Mary and Bubaka touched upon. That is really, really the, the, the next move. But I'm really talking about the sustainability of the economy and the sustainability of the industry. So, you know, I, I'm attending, a, you know, regularly some workshops and reading some papers about, you know, companies wanting to export from here to Europe, to Asia. But really, you know, the, the, the middle class in Africa has already started to take off. So what is more interesting to me, really what I want to focus on is actually the regional trade, right? So with, with South Africa, Zambia, with Malawi. And that will only happen if we have the right connectivity, whether it is by rail or by road. And I'm thinking really about the, communicate, the combination of both so that we can really be more sustainable. So in terms of value chains and not having 10,000 kilometer long shipping, shipping routes, right? So it's really about serving and, and pushing more for this economy development, which will go hand on hand, um, hand by hand with um, the development of uh, transport along these corridors. And, and another part of sustainability is, of course, how the industry can become cleaner. Uh, it is uh, absolutely necessary to tackle transport and sh the shipping industry because this is one of the most polluting, even if we don't have a lot of data. Here in this region, we know because of the uh, average age of the fleet running around that this is a major problem that we need to fix. And that will only happen if there are positive incentives for transporters to invest in cleaner fleet. So meaning, you know, more access to markets. So this is what we're providing them, right? So that they are on an equal foot when it comes to access opportunities and then the big transportation companies. But also we can analyze the carbon footprint of empty journeys versus filled in trucks and as well depending on the uh, on the type of the fleet we can understand how much we the, the industry uh, actually produces in terms of uh, carbon emissions so we really want to uh, operate and move both in terms of connectivity connecting the markets at the regional scale but also showing and providing data on what it is that the transport industry where, where it starts from and where it can go to if we have a cleaner rolling stock Thank you so much, Claire. Stay tuned for more captivating episodes as Roots of Foods continues to explore the diverse fields of agriculture, entrepreneurship, and climate adaptation, from the roots in the soil to the nourishing foods on our tables. Thank you for being part of our Roots of Foods community. And until next time, keep planting the seeds of positive change in the world of active entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Ovidu Bujoran with Roots to Foot, signing off.